As an African-American who grew up in Detroit, you understand that it's impossible to fully prepare for your first trip to Africa. But you could not have expected just how different the locals' perceptions of you would be. And when you began to see through their eyes, you began to find yourself. You're listening to 2233, a podcast of exchange stories. In my pursuit of learning Swahili, I've never come across people who are more supportive, helpful, and, and complimentary uh, during that process of learning a language. People would introduce me. Uh, they'd say, uh, you know, this is William. He knows all of Kiswahili. And I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God, don't say that. Um, you know, and like they were so, like, just proud of me for the effort that I put in and impressed by the work. And like, everybody was willing to teach me. I can't remember of just like thousands and thousands of interactions I've had where like anybody ever made me feel bad for the way I was pronouncing something or a mistake that I made. I left meetings where later a buddy was like, you were talking about cows and I, th- I think you were supposed to be talking about classroom materials. So people were confused, but they appreciated you. <laughs> and not a look. You know, not not a side glance, nothing. Not a whisper in someone's ear. Like, people never did anything that would have made me feel bad about, like, the effort I was making to learn the language. This week, don't call me Mzungu. Call me teacher. Learning from someone because they're not you. And bonding in darkness during a deafening thunderstorm. Join us on a journey from Detroit, Michigan to Nairobi, Kenya, to answer the one million dollar question. It's 2233. We report what happens in the United States, warts and all. These exchanges shaped who I am. When you get to know these people, they're not quite like you. You read about them, they are people very much like ourselves. And that's what we call cultural exchange. Yes. My name is Will Langford. I am a native Detroiter. I'm a poet and a teaching artist. I'm a doctoral student at Michigan State University in the College of Education as well. I served as a Fulbright ETA. Uh, English teaching assistant in Kenya. One of the larger projects that I worked on at my school, Salvation Army Kalanya Girls School, which is in the western province of Kenya, very, very close to Uganda, was a postal exchange. And this postal exchange uh, was set to take place between my high school here in Detroit, Cast Tech, and my school in Kenya. So the objective here uh, was to give both our Kenyan and American students an opportunity to interact with a person from a divergent, uh, different culture.
Salvation Army Colonia Girls School, as the name might imply, is an all-girls institution. So some of the girls, of course, were excited to have international correspondence with maybe a boy. But one of the interesting things, once we got the postcards from the U.S., was the way that it was difficult to figure out whether these American names uh, were boys or girls. So I had a lot of fun um, sort of introducing the postcard to the whole class. So I'd hold it up and maybe there'd be a picture of the spirit of Detroit or an old English D that a Detroit kid had decorated the postcard with. And I'd say, well, this is the symbol of the city of Detroit. This postcard is from Jawan Clark. And the girls would be silent. And one of the girls would say, Mr. Is this a boy or a girl? And I'd say, Juwan is a boy. And the girls would go, ooh, just like American kids. My students in Kenya were fascinated by the idea of prom of the fancy dresses and the rented cars and the amount of money that people spent during prom. The students from Cass Technical High School actually sent us some prom photos and, and everyone marveled over the suits, the dresses, the heels, also the many colors of the students. That amazed them. So Cass Tech is relatively diverse in terms of Detroit high schools. So there are students who are of Middle Eastern descent, African Americans, Hispanic students, so on and so forth. And it was incredibly difficult to sort of explain that all of these kids, despite the fact that they don't look very much alike, uh, were Americans. So they would point uh, to a picture of a kid and they say, this one, is he black? They say, well, yeah, yeah, this guy's black. I said, well, what about this guy? Yeah, he, he's black too, but they look nothing alike. And I say, yeah, that's, that's kind of the American thing. Um, you know, um, different and similar. There were a lot of interesting misconceptions that we spoke about in class and that came up in the postcards. One of those was the idea that Americans eat snakes. Yeah, there was there was some belief uh, that I encountered multiple times, and not just in the postal exchange, um, that Americans uh, ate snakes and, and, and rather enjoyed them. And I don't want to place any blame on anyone <laughs> for that, but I think that a handful of reality television shows have made their way into the market there. And so you've got things like Fear Factor and incomparable shows that like do show Americans eating lots of unusual things. Another popular myth that I heard that, that really surprised me, that I heard from teachers, students, people, you know, more widely, um, was that every American, uh, when they are born, has a bank account. The moment where this first came to my attention was when uh, a fellow teacher asked me, he said, well, 
William, uh, you must have many houses back home. No, no, I, I, I don't even have one house, actually. He said, well, what did you do with the money? And I was like, oh, well, um, what money do you mean? And he said, tell me if this is true. When you are born, every American, they, they, are, they have a bank account. And in that bank account, there's $1 million. I said, oh, no, I, I don't think that's true of most Americans. And it really blew people's minds. Because this idea was so pervasive, I could then see how a lot of the previous interactions I had might have been colored by the belief that I came from extreme wealth as an American. One of the projects that I sort of engaged in in my teaching then was sort of explaining poverty in the United States. Classes, working class, middle class, upper class, so on and so forth, to try to give people a sense that life in America is, is not uniform. People don't enjoy the same quality of life. There are some features, of course, that, that we all get to partake in to some degree, right? If you have transportation, you get to travel on a road that's fairly smooth. You know, there's illumination on many highways and, you know, there are large buildings and cities that you can ogle, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you have business there or that you are um, treated as though you belong in those spaces. So, I mean, this was um, a large undertaking, but it felt really essential to sort of explaining how multifaceted, you know, Americanness is. <laughs> People were really dismayed oftentimes. Adults were often really dismayed at my choice. I don't see it as a choice. Were often dismayed that I see myself as black. And oftentimes among adults, my identifying as a person of color seemed laughable. Some people could not quite imagine why I would want to be seen as black when being white affords you so many privileges. And if I could pass for white, why wouldn't I? Now, of course, this is mediated by my experience as an American, right? I'm, I'm an African-American and here in the United States and in most places I go, I am definitively black. There's no gray area there, but for them, um, because of my complexion and also because I speak with an American accent. It was difficult for them to see and agree to this idea that there could be gradations of blackness. And that, that unsettled me. It was difficult to be definitively black in America and probably white in Africa. my complexion affords me no different treatment. 
Um, whereas in Africa, it could. My accent might gain me something. My Americanness was something I could feel in Kenya in a way that I never feel it in the United States. And it really, really surprised people so much that they would laugh or ask to see pictures of my parents to like prove that I was black or my family to, to prove that I was black. I rode a motorcycle to and from many of the places that I traveled to. It was simpler than navigating a car because of some rocky terrain. So people could see certain parts of my body. They could see a bit of my face, depending upon what I wore. Maybe they could see my hands or parts of my arms. And it was pretty commonplace for people to call uh, from the side of the road. They'd say, Guy, on a mazungu. God, look at that white man. Or just mazungu, 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 mazungu. And I know that for the most part, people really were pretty surprised to see what was presumably a white man like riding over or past Mount Kakapel, really, really deep into the country. What is this white man doing here? And why do we see him every day at the same time? Sometimes I would actually stop and pull over. People would come to greet me. Uh, people, by and large, are always very, very, very friendly. And though, from my perspective, I feel like I'm being heckled right, emotionally, like being called a white man doesn't really sit well with me. So, <laughs> but, but I also knew that these people weren't heckling me. They were genuinely surprised to see a white man. So I would stop. I would pull over. And they'd say, Habari Mazungu, how are you? How are you, white man? How are you, white guy? Uh, very friendly. And I'd say, Ah, Sinita Mazungu, don't call me a white man. Nico Najina, I have a name. Jinalangu ni William. My name is William. Jinalangu ni Mwalimu. Or my name is Teacher. And sometimes that would be enough for people to say, Ah, Mwalimu. And they would just call me teacher. If I happen to see them at the same place at the same time, they'd say, Habari Mwalimu. I tell people that I was a black American and like really try to get into some of the details of who I am and, and why I'm there. But of course, as one man among so many people, explaining my identity became sometimes something that I was too exhausted to do. With little children, uh, sometimes I engaged in a bit of subterfuge, honestly. If they were really small, they'd say, Habari malimu, habari mazungu, whatever the case may be. And I'd say, Najua, you know, Najua Kiswahili. You know, like, I know Swahili, so I must be a Kenyan, right? And they say, hmm. Faces would scrunch up a bit. And uh, they'd say, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because that, the, I knew that, like, for like a really little kid, it would be difficult to, like, work out the logic of, like, why I knew Swahili if I were a white man. And so sometimes that was enough. And it was like the quick version. <laughs> you know, so I imagine that there are probably some some now older, slightly older children um, in Kenya who are like, you know, 
One day I met this white man on a motorcycle and he told me he was a Kenyan and he must have been crazy. They may or may not have believed a word I was saying. <laughs> oh. couldn't rightly assume or would never assume that people would be unfriendly, but I had no idea how giving that people would be. I was often a guest or always a guest, right? Because I'm so far from home and people with one chicken that they plan to kill for Christmas would kill that chicken in June uh, because I arrived. Oftentimes, if I complimented someone on something like their nice watch or, you know, a cool vest, they would move to, like, give me that thing, whether it was a shirt, a jersey, some object that they had that I was genuinely appreciating. And it just blew my mind that, that people were so willing to give without really uh, knowing me. You know, in a lot of the places I traveled, of course, uh, I went there once and maybe I didn't get the chance to return. Unlike in the United States where my credentials must precede me in order to be treated in a certain way in certain spaces. That was not necessary in Kenya at all. In the United States, uh, on an airplane, if someone asks me what I do and I say, oh, I'm a doctoral student um, and a writer. I teach at Michigan State University. Really? How did you get into that? Who helped you? Who made a way for you. In Kenya, that did not exist. There was no sense of surprise, given the color of my skin, that I've achieved what I've achieved. My God, that is the best feeling ever. I get to be me, and not just the me that's black, not just the me that's a, a scholar or a poet, or like, I, I, I get to, enjoy what I enjoy and, and, and be who I am. And I don't have to worry so much about whether people will think I'm a good person or a bad person. Like no one ever crossed the street to avoid me in Kenya. That's happened multiple times this week in my hometown. Say, hi, I'm Will. I'm a teacher. Or hi, I'm Will. I'm visiting this place with my friend Leonard. And that was enough for the warmest reception. I never could have expected that. I never could have imagined living in a society where it doesn't matter so much what I look like. Right? People will sit down and listen to your story because you're human, because you've got a story to tell, because I am not you. And because of that simple piece of logic, you've got something to tell me that I don't know that I can learn from, that I can change and grow with. There's a lot that I learned about myself through my experience with Kiswahili. One of the popular sayings um, in Kenya 
polepole za kobe zilimfikisha mbali going slow took the turtle very far in america an average working person is doing so much in a day the number of tasks if you counted them that you complete in a day in america is massive in kenya though there is an appreciation for doing one thing or two things doing them well and still feeling accomplished there's a meme circulating among graduate students and people at universities and teachers and there's a cat resting on a rug and it says you are not measured by your productivity and the cat looks especially calm and i think in hearing people say that pole pole slowly enda pole pole like go slowly it reminded me that if i can't do all the things at least i can put my heart and my energy and my effort and my focus into one thing that i'm doing and that's something to feel good about similarly leonard uh, my good friend he'd say uh mwenda pole hajigwai uh which means uh, if you go slowly you won't knock things over i raced back home from school every day because there were often torrential rainstorms if i didn't make it home in time on the motorcycle often times with leonard we would take shelter wherever we could find it in a small shop in an abandoned church at one point we actually did a shelter in an abandoned church and lots of other kids got caught in the rainstorm from three or four different schools and everybody kind of sat there in 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 silence and and waited for the storm to pass but when the sun went down hours before we were set to go to sleep at home the rain would fall on our corrugated steel roof so loudly that you couldn't hear a thing inside of the house a lot of times these rainstorms would black out all the lights so now you've got no electricity it's 8 p.m. it's dark outside and you can't hear a thing but you're not sleepy so Leonard and I on on nights like these which were <laughs> relatively frequent in the rainy season we would sit together this long table that we had and we'd open a drink we'd light a candle right in the middle of the table so that we could see each other and we couldn't talk it was so loud even inside the house that even if you were yelling you would not be able to hear the sound of your voice or anyone else's so the only entertainment we could really muster was to light a candle at that table maybe eat a bite of food and kind of just sit there together no conversation no particular activity because there's not enough light from that candle to do anything i don't know those moments really gave me a uh, peace i felt safer somehow with that one candle and that little bit of company i felt less alone and i'm uh, grateful for that because when was the last time you sat in stillness 
by yourself or with somebody else, especially with somebody else. When was the last time you just sat there? is produced by The Collaboratory, an initiative within the U.S. State Department's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs, better known as ECA. My name's Christopher Wurst. I'm the director of The Collaboratory. 2233 is named for Title 22, Chapter 33 of the U.S. Code, the statute that created ECA. And our stories come from participants of U.S. government-funded international exchange programs. In this episode, Will Langford told us about his experiences as part of the Fulbright English Language Teaching Assistant Program, or ETA. We send ETAs out around the world to help assist with English classes. For more about ECA exchange programs, including the ETA program, check out eca.state.gov. We encourage you to subscribe to 2233. You can do that wherever you find your podcasts. And we'd love to hear from you. You can write to us at ecacollaboratory at state.gov. That's E-C-A-C-O-L-L-A-B-O-R-A-T-O-R-Y at state.gov. Special thanks this week to Will for sharing his experiences. I did the interview with Will in an empty classroom at Wayne State University in Detroit and edited this episode. Featured music during this segment was Cradle Rock by Blue Dot Sessions, Umlungu and Western Africa, both by John Bartman, Promise You by Lobo Loco, Lope and Shimmer by Poddington Bear, and Springtime in Africa by Duke Ellington. Music at the top of each episode is Sebastian by How the Night Came, and the end credit music is Two Pianos by Tagir Lius. Until next time.